To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Aspen, Colorado is a beautifully calm city 30 miles from Colorado's Rocky Mountains. But on December 1st, 2011, the calmness of the winter was consumed by heated emotions between a mother and a daughter. 20-year-old college student Morgan Ingram, who was staying at her parents' house, returned home late. Mom was visibly upset, and an argument ensued with spiteful words exchanged. After that, Morgan stormed off to her bedroom. In an effort to make peace with his daughter, her dad, Steve, checked in on her. Despite seeming upset, Steve said she was fine. They had a brief conversation before kissing her goodnight in her PJs. Tragically, this will mark the last time they ever saw their Morgan alive. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 189, The Mysterious Death of Morgan Ingram. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales and leave a positive review. Before we get to this episode, we've got three new supporters that I want to thank. Thank you so much to Michelle L., Emily D. and Jennifer R. Now, let's get to this week's episode. At 9 o'clock p.m. on December 1st, 2011, 20-year-old college student Morgan Ingram was returning home from a friend's house. She was home a little later than her parents expected, but she was an adult, so she figured she could come home whenever she wanted to. But her parents, Tony and Steve Ingram, saw things a little bit different. As soon as Morgan parked her car in the driveway and approached her parents' front door, her mom, Tony, confronted her. She told Morgan that she thought she would be home hours ago, sometime around 4 o'clock. They had plans to go to the post office together that afternoon, and she had been calling and texting her all day and was worried about her. But Morgan was annoyed at how upset her mom was for getting home just a couple hours late. So she simply walked past her mom, muttering bitch, as she walked through the front door and headed straight toward her bedroom. Tony followed Morgan inside the house, but stayed away from her daughter. Instead, she went straight to her husband, Steve, and told him what happened. 
She said their daughter seemed upset and that she had never called her a bad name before. Maybe she was just having a bad day, or maybe she had gotten into a fight with a friend or maybe her boyfriend. So Steve decided to go in and check on her. Sometimes, 20-year-old daughters react much different toward their mom than they do their dad. A few minutes later, Steve went into the bedroom to check on her. It wasn't like their Morgan to become so angry and call her mom names. But Morgan seemed fine. Maybe she was a little upset at her mom for being angry that she came home later than expected, but that was it. Everything else about Morgan seemed fine. After Steve chatted with Morgan for about 10 to 15 minutes, he kissed her goodnight. She was lying on her stomach in bed and was wearing her usual flannel pajamas. She said, I love you, Daddy, and Steve said, I love you too. Steve turned around and walked out of Morgan's bedroom and closed the door. Steve and Tony Ingram had no idea this was the last time they would see their 20-year-old daughter, Morgan Ingram, alive. And nothing could have prepared them for the horror that they would uncover the next morning. A little after 6 a.m., Tony got up and headed to the kitchen, like she did every morning, in her Carbondale, Colorado home. Carbondale is a small town about 170 miles west of Denver and 30 miles from Aspen in the heart of Colorado's Rocky Mountains. Unless you're from Aspen, it's not a place people think of when they think of Colorado. After stopping in the kitchen, Tony decided to go to Morgan's room to check on her. She knew she was angry with her the night before, but figured her daughter was over it by then. So she knocked on Morgan's bedroom door, but she didn't hear anything. So she knocked again, but nothing. Tony opened the door and walked in. When she opened the door, she saw Morgan lying on the bed, but something seemed off. Tony tried to wake her up, but Morgan didn't move. Each time Tony called her name, she didn't respond. After that, Tony ran down the hall and woke up Steve. She told him she went to Morgan's bedroom to check on her, but she wasn't waking up. She tried shaking her and still nothing. So Steve followed Tony back to their daughter's bedroom. He figured that maybe she was just in a deep sleep and was having trouble waking up. So he grabbed her shoulders and tried shaking her. He knew something was terribly wrong when she still didn't respond. After realizing Morgan didn't have a pulse and she wasn't breathing, Tony ran down the hall to call 911 while Steve started performing CPR. First responders from the Garfield County Colorado Sheriff's Department were the first to arrive alongside paramedics and EMS. But by the time they got there, they were too late. 20-year-old Morgan Ingram was already gone. She went from being alive and well less than 12 hours ago to now being dead. So naturally, the question on everyone's mind was how? How did this happen? The Garfield County Colorado Sheriff's Department deputies began their investigation. They had no idea what happened except that a 20-year-old girl was found dead by her parents in her bedroom. That's it. Up went the yellow crime scene tape and the investigation was on. Over the next several hours, Garfield County investigators took hundreds of photos of the house, specifically Morgan's bedroom. They sat down and interviewed her parents, Steve and Tony. 
they needed to clearly understand everything Morgan did the day before she died. Equipped with that information, they hoped to discover what happened to her. According to them, Morgan spent most of the day before with her boyfriend, Danny Roden. At the time, this was a new relationship for Morgan, so she was really excited about spending time with him. According to Tony, she was supposed to be home around 4 o'clock that day. They had plans to go to the post office together that afternoon. But when 4 o'clock came around and Morgan still wasn't home, she said she tried texting and calling her. But her daughter never picked up. In fact, she never heard from her daughter until she returned home hours later. This worried Tony, not because she didn't trust her daughter. She knew Morgan was an adult and didn't need to answer every time that she called. But because Morgan had a stalker. According to Tony and Steve Ingram, someone had been coming around the house and bothering Morgan in the weeks and months leading up to her death. It started about four months earlier, and Morgan was upset and freaked out. So when she didn't pick up the phone and was late coming home, Tony started to worry, and she thought it might have something to do with the stalker. Tony told Garfield investigators that when Morgan finally did come home hours later, around 9 p.m., she was visibly upset. She called her mom a bad name as she walked through the front door and went straight to her bedroom. Although she didn't mention anything about the stalker, she worried something might have happened. But Steve had a different recollection of how Morgan was acting. He said that after Tony told him about the name-calling incident, he went into the bedroom to check on her. And he said Morgan seemed completely fine. She wasn't mad. She didn't seem upset or angry about anything. And she didn't bring up anything about the stalker. So Steve said he said goodnight, kissed her, and walked out of the bedroom door. And according to him... Morgan was wearing her typical set of pajamas, so he just assumed that she was going to go to bed. But less than 12 hours later, she was dead. Later that same day, forensic pathologist Dr. Robert Kurtzman from Garfield County performed Morgan's autopsy. It's almost unheard of for a seemingly healthy 20-year-old girl to suddenly die in her bedroom. There weren't any apparent signs of a break-in, so no one was sure if this could be foul play or not. They also didn't know if the stalker had anything to do with her death. So investigators hoped an autopsy would shed some light on what might have happened. But instead of shedding light, the autopsy only cast more shadows. Morgan's initial autopsy report stated that she died from natural causes due to a genetic metabolic disorder called acute intermittent porphyria. This extremely rare condition isn't known to be fatal, but it can be. So in Morgan's initial autopsy, Dr. Kurtzman, the forensic pathologist, listed her death as natural and attributed her death to this extremely rare metabolic disease. But that's not how this story ends. A few months later, Dr. Kurtzman and the Garfield County Sheriff's Department changed their mind about what happened to Morgan. According to the authorities, her death had nothing to do with a rare genetic disease. Instead, 
it had everything to do with suicide. Eight months after her original autopsy, Dr. Kurtzman revised his autopsy report, and on July 28, 2012, he made his new findings public. Instead of listing Morgan's death as natural, he changed it to suicide, a stark difference in opinion, and here's why. According to the official autopsy report, there was a lethal dose of amitriptyline in Morgan's system. Amitriptyline is a relatively common drug that was once usually only prescribed to treat depression and anxiety. But when this particular drug is taken at lower doses, it's also good for treating pain, especially pain caused by nerve damage. But the amount of this pain medication in Morgan's body wasn't consistent with therapeutic levels. She had fatal levels of the drug in her system at the time of her death. According to the autopsy report created by Dr. Kurtzman, the post-mortem blood level of this type of drug can increase by an average of 3.1 times when compared to anti-mortem samples or samples taken from someone still alive. This means that people taking the drug over long period of times may experience higher levels than someone who wasn't taking it for a long time. Based on her medical history, Morgan was first prescribed the drug in 2003. According to her parents, Steve and Tony, Morgan started getting sick around 11. She had terrible stomach aches and headaches for months, so they decided to take her to the doctor to get checked out. And after being examined, the doctor diagnosed her with irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS. So to deal with the IBS symptoms, the doctor prescribed her a low dose of amitriptyline. After Morgan got the prescription, she regularly took a low dose of it for about eight to nine years. But her parents said she had recently stopped taking it about a year before she died. She had reportedly told her parents that she didn't want to take pain meds for her entire life. She wanted to try more natural remedies to deal with her IBS, doing things like yoga, stretching, and meditation. At the time of her death, she was extremely active in yoga. She thought it might help with the IBS symptoms, and she didn't want to take her prescription anymore. According to Tony and Steve Ingram, the IBS attacks seemed to disappear once Morgan stopped taking her pain medications. Morgan felt much better without the drugs. But the forensic pathologist's findings seemed to contradict Steve and Tony's story. The pain meds found in Morgan's system weren't consistent with a therapeutic amount, even if Morgan had decided to take a small dose that night she died. At the autopsy, she had a post-mortem blood concentration of 7,909 nanograms per milliliter of the drug in her system. Now, for reference, that is about 2.1 times higher than an average fatal dose. So that amount wouldn't be consistent with someone taking a prescription dose of the drug. So even if Morgan had decided to take the medication because she wasn't feeling well that night, she still had way too much of it. But it wasn't just amitriptyline they found in Morgan's blood at the time of her autopsy. They also discovered cyclobenzaprine, a strong muscle relaxant. 
The muscle relaxant was even stranger. Investigators knew Morgan had the pain medication prescription because she had been taking it on and off for years. So it made sense that she might have that particular drug in her system. They also knew that she had access to it because she probably still had a bottle of two of it in her medicine cabinet. But the muscle relaxant didn't make much sense. According to Morgan's parents, she didn't have access to that drug, and they didn't have a prescription for it in their house. So how did Morgan get it? And why was it in her system when she died? Based on the high amounts of drugs in Morgan's stomach and her blood, Dr. Kurtzman revised the manner of death from natural to suicide. He believed that such high doses of prescription drugs indicated that she had likely ingested them intentionally that night, and an overdose of the two drugs was what caused her death. Dr. Kurtzman also noted in his revised autopsy report that Morgan didn't have any signs of trauma or significant injuries to her body, suggesting anyone had forcefully drugged her that night. In his report, he said, quote, There is no evidence of a struggle or evidence to indicate that the decedent was physically forced to ingest the drugs. Therefore, the manner of death is reclassified as a suicide. End quote. So eight months after the original autopsy, Morgan Ingram's cause of death was officially changed from natural to suicide on July 28, 2012. But this announcement completely shocked and outraged Morgan's parents, Tony and Steve Ingram. As soon as they heard the pathologist had changed his mind about what killed Morgan, they immediately went to him and the Garfield Sheriff's Office with their concerns. They showed up at the sheriff's office claiming to know what happened to their daughter. Morgan was murdered. Murdered by her stalker. The grieving parents suddenly have a change of heart. The puzzle pieces are about to fall into place. What crucial details have they kept from the prying eyes of investigators? Get ready to be shocked. According to Morgan's parents, from August 2011 until her death in December, a stalker had been tormenting her. She felt like someone was always watching her and was constantly living in fear. So when they discovered their daughter dead, their first thought was, it had to have been the stalker. The first police reports about the stalker started in early August. And on August 25, 2011, deputies from the Garfield County Sheriff's Department responded to Tony's call about someone coming over to their house, knocking on Morgan's bedroom window, and throwing rocks at it. She said this wasn't the first time it's happened, and since it started, Morgan has been too afraid to sleep in her own bedroom. Two days later, on August 27th, Garfield County deputies sat down and spoke with Tony, Steve, and their daughter Morgan. They told the cops the same story they did two days earlier, but said the stalker was around six feet tall and probably weighed somewhere between 170 and 180 pounds. But when the cops asked Morgan if she thought she knew who the stalker might be, she said no. It wasn't anyone she recognized. She couldn't think of any friends or anyone else who would want to do this. 
So after the cops spoke with the family on August 27th, they took another police report and left. Three days later, on August 30th, Tony called the police again just after one o'clock in the morning. Two deputies responded to the house about another reported sighting of the stalker outside the home. When the police got there, Tony told them that Morgan saw someone throwing rocks at her window again. She was so scared that whoever was doing it would also do something to harm her so that they decided to call the police. Two officers from Garfield County searched the entire premises, but they didn't see anyone. The officers told them to call again if the stalker came back, and then they left. Ten minutes after the deputies left, Morgan's mom, Tony, called again. This time, she said she had a photo of the stalker. She and Steve had recently installed security cameras outside their house after the stalking incident started. And right after the cops left, they reviewed the tapes. They saw the stalker and captured him on video. Two deputies drove back to the Ingram's house, where they were once again met with Tony, who showed them the photo. Not only did they see a guy in the photo walking across the driveway that night, but based on the timestamp at the bottom, the cops saw the man walking across the driveway only two minutes after they left. That meant the stalker was still probably hiding on the property when the deputies showed up earlier. They must have just missed him while looking around the house. According to police reports made by the Garfield County Sheriff's Office, they responded to over 50 calls about the stalker within a four-month period leading up to Morgan's death. Sometimes it was because he was tapping on Morgan's bedroom window. Other times he was throwing rocks at her window. And sometimes it was because Morgan felt like someone was watching her. But every single time the cops showed up at the house, they could never find him. He was either hiding like the camera suggested in that previous incident, or he ran away by the time the police showed up. So even after 50 calls and four months of investigating, no one was ever arrested for the alleged stalking incidents. But who could have been stalking Morgan during the last four months of her life? Well, according to her parents, Tony and Steve, they had a pretty good idea of who it was. Morgan's parents told the police that they thought her stalker might be a guy named Keenan Van Ginkle. They said Keenan lived in a house three doors down from their house with then-girlfriend Brooke Harris. According to Steve and Tony, Morgan and Brooke had once been friends, but something happened to cause their friendship to suddenly end. Tony told investigators that they believed Brooke had keyed her car about six months earlier when Morgan borrowed it. They didn't have any evidence that it was actually Brooke who keyed the car, but according to Tony, Morgan told her she thought it was Brooke because they had recently gotten into a fight. She was the only person she could think of who might have keyed the car. After that, they started to suspect that Brooke's boyfriend, Keenan, might be the stalker. During one of these stalking incidents, Morgan told her parents she got a good look at the person throwing rocks at her window. She said it looked like Brooke's boyfriend, Keenan. 
Although Morgan and Keenan didn't know each other, Morgan's parents claimed their daughter thought he was the stalker. When they captured a photo of him with the house's security cameras, they thought the image looked exactly like Keenan. He had the same body type, same height, same weight. According to them, it looked exactly like Keenan. Even the police thought the photo of the person seen standing in the Ingram's driveway in the middle of the night looked like Keenan. Although the image is grainy and blurry, the person physically resembles him. Same height, same everything. But there wasn't any way to prove that it was actually him. All the police could say was that the person looked like Keenan. They had no solid proof or evidence. So although the cops thought Morgan Stalker might be Keenan, they couldn't arrest him. The only thing they could do was bring him down to the police station and question him. About five months after Morgan died, the cops got their chance to speak with the person her parents believed were their daughter's stalker, Keenan Van Ginkle. But the conversation didn't go as expected. Keenan denied almost everything as soon as they sat down with him. He said he wasn't the person behind the stalking. According to him, he had never even been to Morgan's house. He told investigators that he knew his girlfriend was once friends with Morgan, but that was it. He didn't know her and had probably only met her once or twice at a party. So he claimed he didn't really have a motive to stalk her for months. So even though the photo might look like him, he said it wasn't. And since the cops really didn't have any proof or evidence to suggest otherwise, they let him go. It wasn't only Morgan's parents who knew about the stalking. When the authorities questioned a lot of Morgan's close friends, they said they also knew about it. Almost every single person the cops spoke to said Morgan had complained to them about what was going on. One of her friends even told investigators about a particular incident where Morgan told them that her stalker was standing in her driveway wearing large moose antlers. The whole episode freaked her out. So it wasn't only Steve and Tony who said that Morgan had a stalker. All of her friends also agreed. But following Keenan's interview with the authorities, neither he nor his girlfriend, Brooke Harris, were ever arrested in connection to the stalking investigation, and no one else was arrested either. To this day, there is still an open and pending case of felony stalking involving Morgan Ingram. And today, the true identity behind this so-called stalker remains a mystery even after her death. But this didn't stop Steve and Tony from claiming that a stalker might have killed their daughter. Not only did they have over 50 police reports about a stalker during the four months leading up to her death, but they also claimed to have additional evidence. Evidence that, according to them, proved Morgan was murdered and this wasn't a suicide. What evidence was concealed and why did it take so long to surface? The parents seemed to be harboring more than just grief, and the hidden layers of their secrets are about to unravel. Prepare for a plot twist that will challenge everything you thought you knew about this case. When Steve said goodnight to Morgan the night before she died, 
He said she was wearing pajamas. That's why he assumed when he left her bedroom that night, she was just going to go to sleep. But she wasn't wearing pajamas when they discovered her body in bed the next morning. According to them, Morgan wore a completely different outfit than the night before. She was wearing what he described as street clothes and her jeans were unbuttoned. So this made them wonder if Morgan had changed clothes sometime after her parents said goodnight to her, or maybe she left her bedroom that night. They also thought it was strange that her pants would be unbuttoned. Although there weren't any signs that someone had sexually assaulted her, her parents remained hesitant. They couldn't think of one single logical explanation for why her jeans would be unbuttoned. So to them, this pointed toward foul play. Someone had to have made her change clothes, or someone had to have unbuttoned her pants. Steve and Tony also thought Morgan's bedroom looked completely different from the night before. Steve said her bedroom was clean when he said goodnight to his daughter. Her clothes were put away, nothing was on the floor, and she was lying in bed with her pajamas on, getting ready for bed. But when they came in the next morning, the room was a complete disaster. There were clothes all over the floor. Her mattress looked like it was falling off the bed frame. The sheets were a mess. Everything was completely destroyed. It looked nothing like the bedroom it did the night before. They also said that a few items were missing from Morgan's bedroom. The first was two missing pillowcases, and the second was Morgan's pajamas. According to Steve and Tony, the pajamas that they say she was wearing the night before were missing. And to this day, they've never been found. Even after they searched through the entire bedroom, they never found them. So they have no idea what happened to them. Morgan's parents alleged that a weird beanie was found in the bedroom directly underneath the window. And according to them, the beanie didn't belong to Morgan. Several years following her death, the story was featured on the television show Accident, Suicide, or Murder. And in the episode, the hosts, which included famous cold case investigator Paul Holes, had the beanie sent to a crime lab for DNA testing. When the DNA test results came back, the show said the lab found a mixture of three individuals' DNA on the beanie. The stronger contributor belonged to an unknown male, and there were two other weaker DNA profiles on it. But according to the television show, Morgan's DNA likely wasn't one of them. In other words, her DNA wasn't likely to be on the beanie found in her bedroom. So who did the beanie belong to? Well, her parents have always maintained their daughter didn't own anything like that. They claimed it was found on the bedroom floor the morning her body was discovered. To this day, the owner of the beanie has never been identified and the unknown DNA on it remains a mystery. The biggest argument toward murder wasn't about the beanie or the missing pajamas. Morgan's parents' biggest argument was this. The Morgan Ingram they knew wasn't suicidal. They told investigators that their daughter never talked about suicide and wasn't depressed. She might have been stressed about the stalker, but she wouldn't have killed herself. They even pointed towards her last social media post that was made just a few hours before she died, which said, quote, I love life. 
And although a lethal amount of drugs was found in her system at the time of her death, they said she could have been injected with the drugs or she might have been forced to take them. Although the medical examiner found no evidence Morgan was forced to take the drugs, her parents allege that's probably what happened. Their Morgan would never do anything like that. But could Morgan have been injected with the drugs or forced to take them? Well, if you ask the medical examiner, the answer is no. At the autopsy, the medical examiner found no quote-unquote party drugs in her system. She didn't have any alcohol. There wasn't any cocaine or marijuana. The only two drugs in her body were the prescription pain meds and the muscle relaxant, and both were present in lethal amounts. But the troubling question remained, how did Morgan ingest the drugs? The medical examiner didn't note any strange marks on her arms or body. There was no indication that someone had injected her with the drugs like her parents believed. Instead, the medical examiner is confident, based on his report, that Morgan took the two drugs orally. So, unless someone held her down and forced her to take the pills orally, she did it herself. Morgan's state of mind was closely scrutinized around the time of her death. The biggest question became, was Morgan suicidal? When the authorities interviewed Morgan's friends, no one reported thinking that she was either depressed or suicidal. The only notable difference was the stress-filled presence of the stalker. But other than that, her friends knew nothing about her mental state. They all said she seemed fine in the weeks and months leading up to her death. But Morgan's boyfriend had a different memory about his girlfriend. According to the boyfriend, Danny Roden, Morgan felt a little down when she died. He told the cops he was with her the day before and she left around 5.30 or 6 p.m. And he wasn't sure where she went after she left his house. Maybe she went out with some friends, but he wasn't sure. He said at first he suspected foul play. He simply didn't want to believe that the Morgan he knew, his girlfriend, had killed herself. But after some time, he started to change his mind. He said Morgan was tremendously stressed about the stalking. She seemed a little down and upset on the last day they spent together. So although suicide seemed far-fetched at first... Over time, he started to believe that maybe that's what actually happened. Morgan's own parents, Steve and Tony, also seemed to have a change of heart about what they believed happened. According to the show, Accident, Suicide, or Murder, when the police first spoke to them immediately after Morgan died, Steve Ingram told investigators that she was suicidal in thinking about possibly ending her own life. And his wife, Tony, agreed. During a taped interview, she told investigators that she could have killed herself that night. She said her bedroom was always a mess in the weeks leading up to her death. She left her clothes on the floor and didn't bother to pick up anything. So she thought this was a major red flag that her daughter was depressed and didn't even have the energy or desire to pick up after herself. But this is strange Because right after Steve and Tony spoke with the police, 
they seem to do a complete 180. After these initial interviews with investigators, the Ingrams change their minds. And ever since, they have stuck to one theory and one theory alone. Morgan was murdered and probably by her stalker. Now, it's unclear why they changed their minds, but they remain persistent. Morgan didn't commit suicide. It's been 12 years since 20-year-old Morgan Ingram was mysteriously found dead in her bed in Carbondale, Colorado. The Garfield County coroner originally ruled her death as natural and said she died from a rare metabolic condition. But eight months later, he revised his ruling to suicide. That was after they discovered a lethal amount of two prescription drugs in her system, a pain medication she was prescribed to treat her IBS symptoms, and a muscle relaxant. Authorities believe she intentionally took both drugs, possibly intending to kill herself, or maybe she was simply trying to call out for help. Either way, the amount and combination of both drugs is what killed her. Colorado investigators believe she took the pain medication from an old prescription bottle inside her parents' house. But it's unclear exactly where she got the muscle relaxers. She didn't have a history of taking any, and her parents don't know where she could have gotten them. Although Morgan's death is officially ruled a suicide, her parents, Steve and Tony Ingram, have long argued that their daughter was not suicidal or even depressed and that the circumstances surrounding her death simply don't add up. They said she was murdered, probably by a stalker who had been terrorizing her for the last four months before her death. Both sides say that they have the forensic evidence on their side. The Garfield County coroner says Morgan overdosed on two prescription drugs. One of the drugs she had in her system was over twice the amount needed to become fatal. But Morgan's parents also say the forensic evidence is on their side. They say Morgan was forced to ingest the drugs and the police ignored critical evidence. They believe it was a botched investigation right from the start. The cops never performed a rape kit, despite Morgan's jeans being unbuttoned. They didn't collect any scrapings from underneath her fingernails. They didn't dust for fingerprints in her bedroom or on the window. And besides a basic autopsy, they didn't do any additional testing on her body to see if foul play was maybe involved. Steve and Tony Ingram believe the cops were way too quick to rule this off as a suicide. The Ingrams also point to other possible forensic evidence. The mysterious beanie allegedly found on Morgan's bedroom floor that contained unknown DNA. The missing pillowcases. The missing pair of pajamas Morgan was supposedly wearing the night before she died. And most disturbing to them, the unidentified stalker. Which side of the forensic evidence do you believe? The county coroner's report that Morgan died from a drug overdose? Or the parents' belief that their daughter was murdered? As of today, her stalker has never been identified. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. 
After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. You'll want to listen to this one because I'm going to share what I think about Morgan's case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller Audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., Paula G., Nicole G., Christine B., Karen D., Sherry A., Nancy H., Michael D., Elizabeth M., Nicola, Jerry L., Gary M., Brian W., James C., Natasha K., and Julia S. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.